You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 117. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, and tell you about the ups and downs of my writing endeavors. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part two of my story, The Muse. In last week's episode, we met J. William Karenson, an earnest young college student from the suburbs. Will dreams of being a great writer, but he's been feeling uninspired. His muse, the imaginary spirit of inspiration who lives in his head, has apparently gone on an extended vacation. Will was out for a walk when he happened to encounter Callie Linder. Callie is a runner, a freelance spy, thief, and courier, who does missions on the street for the highest bidder. Right now, Callie is working for the Church of St. Marai. The church hired her to steal back a holy icon, which had been taken from them by a street-level wizard named Trajan. Tomorrow night is Daedra an important night for the forces of darkness. Trajan planned to deface the icon in a magic ritual, which would allow him to summon a powerful Daedra to destroy his enemies, if he can control it, which Callie thinks is unlikely. Callie succeeded in stealing the icon back from Trajan, but now he and his goons are scouring the city looking for her, hoping to recover the icon before time runs out to complete the ritual. Callie recruits Will to help disguise her, and for the moment they are successful in evading pursuit. After Callie explains what's going on, Will agrees to go with her to retrieve the icon from its hiding place. Will has been hungry for an adventure, something to break him out of his routine and lure his muse back to him. Helping Callie could be just what he needed. The Muse, a tale of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Part 2 The seven blocks back to Callie's hiding spot passed without incident, as she and Will kept up their little charade of being the two lovebirds lost in each other's eyes. They approached the building from the side opposite where Callie had emerged, in case Trajan's thugs were expecting her to retrace her steps, and rode a lift up to the fourth Skyway level. They emerged in the midst of a high-class, glitzy shopping district, full of the sorts of stores Will had barely heard of, much less bought anything from. The stores were all closed at this hour, but a few upscale nightclubs were still open here and there, and a modest but steady trickle of pedestrians passed in all directions, along the plazas and skyways. Bypassing the street-front shops, they made their way into the building's interior. It was another shopping mall, but this one had high-arched ceilings, crystal chandeliers, and ornate fountains. Very few people were in here, mostly just maintenance staff and security guards. Two-thirds of the lights were turned off, giving the whole place a quiet, watchful air. Why do they even let people in here after the stores close? Will asked his voice barely above a whisper. There are offices and apartments on the floors above us, Callie said. These halls are the only way to get there from the Skyway, 
unless you're one of the few people with a private entrance. Where's the icon? I stashed it in one of these shops. We're almost there. The shop in question was an exotic furnishing store, the sort of place where you could find 5,000-mark coffee tables and statues to put on them that cost ten times that much. The front windows were filled with various odds and ends, from vases to chairs to exotic rugs, all of them decadently ornate, none of them bearing visible price tags. If you had to ask how much they cost, you couldn't afford them. The entrance to the shop was blocked by a double gate of heavy metal bars with gold overlay, which were clearly designed to swing outward and frame the entrance when the store was open. Right now, however, they were securely held together by an impressive-looking lock. Will whistled appreciatively. That looks tough, he said quietly. But hey, you got in once already, right? He turned away from the lock and took a few steps toward the middle of the hallway, crossing his arms and looking this way and that. Don't worry, Callie, I've got your back, he said confidently. Just do what you need to do, and I'll keep watch for any badges heading this way. You can count? Um... Well, yeah. I don't actually need to pick the lock. I have the key. Oh. Will couldn't help feeling a little disappointed at that. He was just starting to get into the whole spy thing. Deflated by the sudden loss of dramatic tension, he watched as Callie fished a golden key out of her pocket and quickly opened the gate. She took the key with her, disappeared into the shadowed interior for about twenty seconds, and then returned carrying a small paper shopping bag with the store's logo printed on it. She shut the gate, and it automatically locked itself behind her. Got it, she said. Let's go. As they walked away, Will shot her a sidelong glance. So how did you get the key to that place anyway? Callie shrugged. I know Talbot, the owner. I've acquired some rare items for him in the past. He's almost a friend. And this almost friend, just gave you the key to his place? No. Callie smirked, and her eyes danced with amusement. But I've been around enough to know where he keeps his spare. I pocketed it earlier today, so I wouldn't have to break in tonight after I got the icon. With Trajan after me, I knew I couldn't afford to waste any time. Good thinking. Again, comes from experience. Now let's get this thing someplace safe. Taking the lift back down to the second-level Skyway, where their clothes were less out of place than on the wealthier fourth level, they caught a transit shuttle and rode it about three miles south, then disembarked and began walking east. They were in a residential zone now, a neighborhood of lower-income apartments that were, literally, one step above the slums and flop houses of the street. Trees, shrubs, and flowers grew in long planters between the road and the sidewalk and parked skimmers lined the curb on both sides. It looked much like a typical city neighborhood anywhere in the Western world, except that in this case, the sky was largely blocked out by another layer of roads about twenty stories overhead. The neighborhood was quiet at this hour, and the occasional lit window was the only sign of activity. After going about five blocks, they came to another apartment that looked a lot like all the rest of them. This one had a sleek black swoop nestled between the skimmers in front of the entrance. Callie opened the door and led Will up the steps to the first door on the right. This is my flat, she said, fishing in her pocket for the key. Well, one of them, anyway. It's actually more of a safe house. We should be... Her eyes drifted down to the doorknob, and her voice abruptly trailed off. 
Will frowned, leaning forward for a closer look. The door was firmly shut, but he noticed a few scratches on the door jamb next to the handle. Come on, Callie whispered, turning to go back down the steps. As she spoke, she tucked the shopping bag into the inside pocket of her borrowed jacket and zipped it up. Now, hurry! As quietly as they could, they hustled back down the steps and out to the skyway. Callie looked down the road in both directions and let out a loud curse. Pulling out of a parking garage about half a block to the east were three swoops, and they were headed this way. Quick, get on the swoop, she said, practically leaping into the saddle and starting it up in the same instant. Will clambered on behind her and wrapped his arms around her waist, and then they were off like a bolt of lightning, flying back down the street to the west. Callie gave them a little bit of altitude to make sure they wouldn't run into any street-bound traffic, and opened up the throttle a bit wider. The swoop seemed to enjoy the exercise, its engine running at what Will's rider brain labeled a throaty purr. Unfortunately, the swoops behind them didn't seem to be having any trouble handling the pace either. If anything, they were gaining on them. Callie spared a quick glance back over her shoulder and cursed again. Hold on tight, she warned, shouting almost in his ear to be heard over the rush of wind. This is gonna get ugly. Why, can't you lose them or something? Will shouted back. Callie shook her head in an exaggerated motion. They're not the ones I'm worried about, she said. She pointed in front of them. They are. Will looked up and unconsciously squeezed Callie even tighter. Four more swoops were coming toward them from up ahead. They were flying in a box formation over the road, too high and too low. A streak of red fire shot toward them from the one on the upper left, passing about six feet to one side of their swoop, and Will's heart leapt into his throat. Not only were they being chased, they were being shot at. Callie had obviously seen the shot as well, since she immediately threw the swoop into a series of sharp jinks and waggles to throw off any further shots. As they flew closer, Will could see that the thugs were using swoop-mounted machine guns. Highly illegal, but apparently easy enough to conceal when they weren't in firing mode. The fiery dart Will had seen was a tracer round, packed with chemicals that were designed to burn brightly as it flew. Not very dangerous in itself, but it helped the pilot aim more effectively at a moving target. And if those guns were anything like the ones in Air Force fighter craft, each tracer was accompanied by three to five solid metal bullets you couldn't see. More tracers flew all around them, but Callie kept them out of harm's way. As they came within a hundred meters, she juked left, then right, then down, and finally on a diagonal to the upper left, and then they were through the gauntlet, blasting right through the center of the box. Will's stomach joined his heart in the vicinity of his throat, and it was only with great effort that he managed to keep his coffee down. The enemy swoops looped around and gave chase, but by now Callie and Will were passing out of the neighborhood and onto a major skyway. Unfortunately, even the major skyways had relatively little traffic right now, at least in this part of the city, and their pursuers merged into the road without difficulty. Will knew, or at least dearly hoped, that they wouldn't be crazy enough to take shots at them in front of a bunch of other vehicles, but Callie wouldn't be able to stay on this road forever. If this were anything like the movies, Trajan would have his people set up some kind of rolling roadblock further down, probably a couple of heavy cargo trucks full of armed thugs. Where are we going? Will asked, 
having to shout even louder this time. Dangerous not, Callie yelled back. I think we can lose him there. Will nodded and tried to settle in for the ride. The dangerous not, as it was called by traffic reporters, was a snarl of six major divided skyways that converged about five kilometers south of the citadel. It was one of the relatively few places where you could pass from one level of the city to another without stopping and pulling into a skimmer lift, and it was made all the more unusual by the fact that it connected three levels in this fashion, the first two levels of skyways and the street. With its three-dimensional cloverleaf intersections and winding spiral roads going upward and downward, it was easy for a driver to get confused. No doubt that was what Callie was counting on. They rode in silence for a few minutes, weaving in and out of what little traffic there was, in an effort to block the Swoopy's view of them as much as possible, until at last they came to the knot. The levitating skyways loomed out of the darkness ahead, the coiled loops of road reminding Will of the DNA double helix on the cover of his biology textbook. Kelly pulled into the lane that would take them along the upward spiral, toward the second skyway level of the city. The other swoop saw her and copied the move. Traffic was heavier here, and Callie zipped carefully between the lanes of upward-bound skimmer traffic. She was apparently better at it than the other swoopies, because she quickly gained a substantial lead on them. When she was a full turn of the helix ahead of them, and thus directly above them, with the road beneath her blocking their view, she jumped the swoop over the gap and merged onto the downward spiral. Ducking into the left lane beside a large truck, she matched pace with the vehicle as they rode back down, using it as a shield to block the view of the swoopies on the upward spiral. They rode the helix past the first skyway level, where they'd just come from, and down to street level, then turned and sped off to the west. They hadn't gone more than two blocks when a swoop pulled out of an alley in front of them and fired. Callie cursed feelingly and stretched out a hand in front of her, as streaks of fire erupted from the nose of the enemy swoop. Will winced and put his head against Callie's back, bracing for the bullets he was sure were about to tear through his flesh. He was distracted by a flash of light that he felt even through his closed eyelids. Lifting his head to look, he saw that he, Callie, and the swoop were all enveloped in a sphere of pinkish, shimmering light. Little motes of white energy danced here and there around his head, and Will saw some of them darting forward to meet the bullets streaking toward them. One by one, the tracers hit the tiny white sparks and went flying off at bizarre angles. Some went off in entirely the wrong direction, while others only missed the swoop by inches. But none of them hit Callie, Will, or their vehicle. Evidently, the swoopy was so puzzled by this that he forgot he was in their way. Callie nudged her swoop upward a little just enough to avoid hitting the other vehicle, but not enough to avoid hitting the pilot. The long, slender nose of the swoop plowed into his helmet with a loud, awful crack, and he went flying bodily off his mount and hit the asphalt more than ten meters down the road. My God, you killed him, Will gasped. Maybe or maybe not, but I'm not sticking around to find out, Callie said. They darted off down a side street made several more quick turns to throw off any other potential pursuers, then pulled out onto a lonely, quiet road between two rows of warehouses. Callie slowed down to a speed at which they could carry on a civil conversation. Trajan won't follow us here. 
This is another gang's turf, she said. But that means we'd better not stay here long, either. Unfortunately, Trajan found my safe house, so I have to assume he can find the others, too. You know anywhere we can spend the night? Will shrugged, though he doubted Callie noticed the gesture. Why don't we go back to my place? Trajan doesn't know me, so he shouldn't think to look there. Callie grinned. Sounds like a plan, Tiger. Just show me where to go. And that's the end of part two. Next week, Will takes Callie back to his place, where he learns an important secret about her past. Louis L'Amour said, Start writing, no matter what. The water does not flow until the faucet is turned on. So, let's see how the taps are flowing this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,141 words this week, over the course of six hours, for an average writing speed of 690 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 75 days without breaking my chain. This week I spent much of my spare time reading through The Lost and the Least. Once a book is done, I like to read through it completely, from beginning to end, to make sure that it flows together as a finished story. This is also the time when I catch spelling errors, inconsistencies, and other mistakes. The more of the little stuff I can catch on my own, the less I have to worry about it tripping up my beta readers. So far, I've given the book to six beta readers. Two of them are fellow authors who I look to for advice on pacing, characterization, and other things like that. One is a Metamore Keep writer, whose character I'm using extensively in this story. Three are subject matter experts people with more knowledge than me about some of the topics that are covered in the book. On the new writing side, this week I returned to working on Operation Ibex. This is another Artax story, set in the time between the two world wars, when Artax was working as a secret agent. This is a fun story for me, a sort of mashup of steampunk James Bond with Indiana Jones. Right now I'm in Chapter 4, and the story is up over 7,000 words. And now, the feedback. Emily posted this in the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. Hey Chris and fellow Metamorphs. So, the last time I posted, I was asking advice about teaching my creative writing class. That went amazingly. I had a great group of kids, and some fantastic writers. The bad news is, I don't have room in my schedule to teach the class anymore. However, a few of my students liked it so much that we decided to create a creative writing club for the school. Our ultimate goal is professional publishing, in whatever form that might take. Digital, audio, or hard copy. Do you or anyone else have advice for my fledgling authors? Thank you again for your help and inspiration. Hi, Emily. Back when I was a teacher, I also did an after-school creative writing club. I think the most important thing I learned about doing this was the importance of listening to what the students themselves wanted the club to be. Every writer follows a different path toward mastery, and depending on who shows up for your club, they're going to have different strengths and weaknesses, and different things they care about working on. Talk with them. Throw out some ideas. See what sparks their interest. Try to get some consensus on what they'd like to learn about. 
and build your activities around that. In the case of my students, they wanted to get better at characterization. We started out with some lessons on creating characters. We talked about the roles that characters play in stories, protagonists, antagonists, mentors, etc. We talked about character traits that distinguish characters from one another, like introverted versus extroverted, emotional versus logical, methodical versus spontaneous. And then I had them create characters of their own, and introduce those characters to the rest of the group. After that, I had them create a round-robin story using Google Docs. They all had Google accounts through the school, so it was easy to create a single shared document that they could take turns adding to. We set some basic rules for how the round-robin would work. When it was your turn, you'd read what the people before you wrote and write the next piece of that story, having your own characters join the action. Along the way, you got to build on what the other writers had built. And because everybody's characters were different, it meant that you would automatically get in some practice with writing for characters you might not normally write for. However you do it, the most important thing is for your students to practice telling stories and sharing them with other people. If I were you, I'd emphasize that the experience of sharing the story is the important thing. Publishing isn't as important as getting it in front of an audience. There are lots of places online where people of all different skill levels can share their stories with each other and receive feedback. You could explore some of these sites with your students, or create your own space, like a free wiki or a discussion board. It's okay to start small. I wrote my first stories just for me and my mom, and then for an online mailing list of a few hundred people. Don't worry about Create Space or the Kindle Store, or even podcasting. Just help your students find a place to share their stories with other people. The more they write and get feedback on what they've written, the more they'll want to keep writing, and the faster they'll grow. I hope this helps, Emily. If the rest of you have advice to share with her, head on over to the Fans of Metamore City group and chime in. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2003 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.